Today's guest, Daniel DiMartino Booth, is the CEO and Chief Strategist of Quill Intelligence, a research partner of Forward Guidance. If you would like discounted annual access on the Quill Intelligence newsletter, The Daily Feather, click the link in the description or use code GUIDANCE on Substack. Thanks, let's get into the interview. Danielle, welcome. What a day to do this interview. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. How are you? It's good to take a, at least a 60-minute breather off of Twitter. So this is good. Yes, yes, it really is. So, oh my God, on Friday, Silicon Valley Bank toppled. Uh, yesterday on Sunday, Signature Bank fell too. The dominoes are, are really falling. How do you think we got in this mess? What are your general thoughts? There's a huge technicality going on right now. And that's that, uh, that, that's that most financial institutions... Um, they need curve in the yield curve. Absent that, uh, they tend to go search for yield. And there was a commitment during Jay Powell's highly unfortunate transitory phase. There was a commitment on the Fed's part basically to hold rates at an artificially repressed level, keep them at the zero bound, however you want to put it, such that a lot of banks said, you know, I look at the five-year yield on the treasury. That's nothing. So they went in search of yield. And in, in order to do that, they had to take on duration risk. Now, this ended up being the mother of all backlashes, but for certain banks to much greater extents. And I think that that's where you have to, to distinguish once the rate hike expectations did a complete 180. Um, but I will say to those who are like, but he made a promise, if the Federal Reserve cannot be an entity that bends to the will of fiscal largesse gone mad, that the Fed monetized, that I criticized at the time, but you cannot turn a blind eye when inflation's pushing double digits. And you have to understand that regardless of what Maybe the Federal Reserve is saying or not saying. Maybe there's a Game of Thrones going on in the background, a huge leadership vacuum going on at the Fed that, that prevented the Fed from getting off the transitory narrative soon enough. But when you're watching this consumer price index pushing double digits, any rational actor in the financial markets knows that the Fed will have to react to that and fight inflation. So banks took on tons of interest rate risks because rates were at zero. Now they're not. They're at 4.75%. The Federal Reserve raised uh, drastically last year. Is it fair to say, as my guest did on Friday, uh, the day Silicon Valley Bank fell, that the Federal Reserve is to blame for, for the collapse of these banks? To blame is a great big word because although this is a situation that has been exacerbated tremendously by increasing interest rates when banks are sitting on a bunch of very low coupon paper. It has certainly, it, it's the kindling, if you will. It is the backdrop, but no two banks are created alike. And you have to get down to the underlying, the, the reason that Silicon Valley Bank was taking in so many deposits it was because it was the place to bank. If you were a unicorn in receipt of money that was irrationally being thrown around like candy because money was free. And I think that, that you, you have to back up one more step to the fact that 
as somebody put it out there very intelligibly a few days ago, if you worked at Enron, make any sense at all for you to also have your entire personal portfolio in Enron stock. No, it didn't. So wealthy people should have the the mental wherewithal to know that they shouldn't have all of their assets in one place, all of their loans in one place. And there was, there was a CEO whose name floated across Twitter sometime in the last 72 hours. And he basically said, I didn't take a loan from Silicon Valley Bank because they made me commit to do all of my business full vertical with them. And I didn't feel that that was a prudent step to take. So there are rational actors, no matter how high speculation goes, to suggest that Silicon Valley Bank was not in a at a riskier end of the spectrum, which was recognized, by the way, by many in 2022 to suggest that they're in the same camp as as JP Morgan Chase is just it's it's specious. I want to get into that uh, moral hazard argument, Daniel. First of all, what is moral hazard? Hazard. What are c- concerns about it? And uh, do you think that the emergency measures announced yesterday are are a form of moral hazard? Well, uh, unless we're some backward water third world country, um, or, or Russia or China. Sorry, I had to say that. But unless you're that kind of a country, you have to have a supposition that depositing money in a bank is safe. If 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 you're operating on under the presumption that the US banking system is by design unsafe, then it's not the United States of America banking system. It makes absolutely no sense. There's good reason that there were hedge funds out on Saturday morning saying, initially, I'll offer you 80 cents on the dollar. I'll buy your deposits right now, Oprah Infi. I'll buy them all. There's good reasons that the hedge funds were doing that. And that's because they understand how the FDIC works. And that's the post all asset sales. They're going to get a good chunk of their money back. So that's the way a, a developed world banking system works. What the FDIC, Treasury, and Federal Reserve did yesterday was trying to prevent a run of runs. And in coming out and saying, depositors, you do not have to flee your banking institution, that prevented that. I dare say, you know, the, the bigger problem here is that there's only so much of a backstop that even that guarantee can put out there because there is so much more awareness. When my internist reach out, reaches out to me on a Friday afternoon and says, should I take all of the money out of my bank and put it in a high yielding CD? That's a different dynamic, Jack. That's completely, that's a different story. Backstopping depositors, and searching for higher yield because you can find it. Those present banks with two different challenges. Yes, I'll note that even with the backstops that were announced yesterday, um, regional banks all across the country, their, their stocks are down, presumably for a rational reason because of their, our ad flows. And it's even though the crisis is within regional banks, it's not specific to one region. It's uh, Key Corp in, in Ohio. It's the Bank of Hawaii. It is, yes, the Bank of Silicon Valley. Uh, Signature Bank, I think, was headquartered in, in, the, in New York. So it's all around the country. 
And yes, the JP Morgan's Bank of America's, they're going to be fine. But a run on regional banks is is still a problem, no? Look, it's highly problematic. In fact, there's a theory that the United States would be that much more efficient if we were to have, like other developed nations, just a handful of banks. My issue is that we are a company that is built on a backbone of a community banking system. The the reason that, that we got into the subprime mortgage crisis, for example, was that there weren't enough community banks in the business of making mortgages. Instead, we had drive-by appraisals and a lot of automation at the national level and algorithms that were put in place instead of good old-fashioned, you know, are you credit worthy? Well, I've known this person for generations. They're going to be a good credit. I'm going to make a good loan. So if, if there was theoretically a commitment on the part of JP Morgan to buy up every decent regional bank in the country and promise to keep all branches where they are, that'd be a different story. There's no, there's no promise there. In fact, we've seen whether you, I saw a headline just a few days ago, PNC bank closing 30 branches. We've seen bank branches close one after another, after another, after another. And what does that do to the rural economy in the United States? It devastates it. I want to lay out an argument uh, that would uh, that I've heard a lot you know, on, on Twitter for, from other folks that it would oppose the actions taken yesterday, which is if Silicon Valley Bank made a, a mistake, it did not hedge its interest rate risk. It parked $100 billion in very interest rate sensitive sectors. It didn't have a risk manager and it stood on its, its hands while the Federal Reserve increased rates by 475 basis points, even as the industry with which it, the industry that it banked, uh, venture capital, uh, is going through some, some tough times. If they made that mistake and if the depositors, businesses who kept over a quarter million dollars at that bank, if they uh, you know, kept, kept money over the, over the limit, why shouldn't you have uh, sort of nature take its course? Well, okay. So risk management is one thing. I invented a new deadly sin yesterday, Jack. I invented the deadly sin of conflation, um, eighth deadly sin. If it's one thing, if your, your risk management is asleep at the wheel, and there are some things to suggest that that was certainly the case at Silicon Valley bank. It's a whole nother thing to reclassify, your treasuries and agencies is hold to maturity, in which case they cannot be hedged. The best, the best analogy is you're trying to buy insurance on your home after it's burned to the ground. Now, all states not going to underwrite that policy. Ain't happening. If something's been classified as hold to maturity, that's where it lives, unless the Fed provides some kind of outlet to release that classification of hold to maturity from its bondage. Does that indicate a, a regulatory failure where, okay, the, the post-grade financial crisis regulation, quite good at identifying credit risk, with particularly within large institutions, but when it comes to interest rate risk in those middle-sized banks, are, are there some lackings there? Well, it seems like the regulatory authorities thought that zero interest rate policy was going to last forever, which puts them right up there with the sell side on Wall Street. So the... I think the, the the reason that regulatory 
regulations become so problematic is that they're always made with a rear view mirror view and made to cater to yesteryear's issue. These are not a bunch of subprime mortgages that we're talking about here. And it's not, as you rightly point out, a credit issue. It is much more a credit issue in the non-banking sector. And that is, that's a really tricky place to go right now, Jack. But to your point, regulations assumed that the Federal Reserve would never be able to normalize interest rates. Is that a safe assumption on which to design a regulatory framework is we're always going to be stuck at the zero bound. It would seem to be that's what's happened. That does not provide a defense for Jay Powell, however, unless, and this is where, this is where the hate mail really piles up quick, Jack, unless he's trying to never go back to the zero bound and unless he's trying to never go back to QE, in which case you have to think so far outside the box as to reinvent a regulatory framework in real time. And in today's Daily Feather, you wrote how there are two camps. There's the, the pivoters who want the Federal Reserve to slam rates back to, to zero, sort of use this crisis as an excuse to go back to, to, to ZERP. And then there are people who want the Fed to maintain its tight, uh, tight stance. Which camp are you in, Danielle? I'm in the camp that hopes that the, that the Fed can thread the needle and maintain just maintain a tight stance. I've been I've been saying publicly for months that the that the level of interest rates is is no longer relevant. I I I've, I've been saying that for 6 months now that we are where we need to be as long as we never go back to zero. Because zero is why in 2020 the non-banking sector was 220 trillion dollars worldwide. Zero is why the conventional banking system at the same time was 180 trillion globally. It's because of zero that you can get free money and do with it what you want, wherever you want, outside of the purview of anything that can be regulated. Speculation will never be, risk and reward will never come together again. Consequences will be eradicated forever if we decide that the new normal going forward is living at the zero bound. You will always have speculators and the, the smartest guys in the room one step ahead of you. I want to establish several levels of uh, regulatory assistance, let's call it. Uh, the backstops, let's say the backstops that were provided yesterday, they, they stay in place and the Federal Reserve continues quantitative tightening and uh, hikes to where the market thought it would a week ago, 5.5%. What does the banking system look like there, particularly the regional banks? Are you know any, any more failures? What about if the Fed pauses, uh, as now the market thinks it will, maybe a, a 25 basis point hike at March, but pretty much done after that. We've had a biblical, to use your phrase, um, you know, uh, bull steepening in, in the yield curve. I'm looking for a very perverse form of Goldilocks here. Um, because my Goldilocks is that they continue to naturally reduce the size of the Fed's balance sheet as, as treasuries and, and very few agencies mature. I, I am advocating 
for that. I'm advocating for shrinking the balance sheet. I'm advocating for maintaining interest rates at a fairly high level, but not really bringing them up much further than where they are. I think that they have the rationale to pause. If the CPI is on fire, I mean, and fuego hot, bad stuff, you know, tomorrow morning, okay, maybe you have this discussion. But generally speaking, the layoff cycle is it, it's in motion. The bankruptcy cycle, it's in motion. You know, right now, interest rates, the level of interest rates have proven to be problematic enough to start expunging from the system bad players, bad business models. So they don't need to be any higher for that to continue. If you want to stop that in its tracks, you've got to go back to the zero bound. That's the only thing that's going to that's going to stop the default rate cycle right now. So Again, if the Fed's going to indemnify you know, on an overnight basis for a very long time, the problem that it created, all these hold maturity assets, if it's, if it's going to backstop that, then it should be able to continue with the process of quantitative tightening. It will not make Wall Street happy because bad loans will go bad. Anything not accepted is, is it's just, but as I said to somebody this morning, let's say that the Fed says, okay, the windows, what? bring me your CRE loans, bring me your construction loans, bring me every bad loan you've got. I'll take anything, made in loan three, made in loan four, made in loan to infinity. What's that gonna accomplish? That's moral hazard, Jack. That's where, because these office buildings, they ain't going past 50% occupancy for a long time. So when, when Ben Bernanke, which I think he was lying, I said that word out loud. When Ben, when ben Bernanke disingenuously said, we can't backstop Lehman's paper. It's an insolvent institution. A lot of the paper was made good in time by market forces, but there's something worse than any bailout if you start taking really bad loans and you know that you're never going to have the money made whole. Heck, Maiden Lane was whole in the end, didn't lose money. But this would be a step further out. This would be a Maiden Lane knowing that you were going to eventually have taxpayer losses, which in my mind is the Rubicon. It's not a treasury. It's not an agency unless you're working under the assumption the United States is going away because that's what you're saying. If it's not going to be good at maturity, then we no longer exist as a nation. But I say we don't go past that line, hmm. which is going to take bad players out of the system, which is okay. Danielle, a lot of what you spoke about just there was credit risk. Uh, CRE is commercial mm -hmm. real estate. So loans going bad, people not paying it back. That is different from the problems that we discussed at the, at the beginning of, of our talk, which is mainly due to interest rate risk, um, um, not credit risk. Uh, I, I want to hear about the credit risk that you see in the system. And you've been pointing out certain vulnerabilities uh, in the job market, in the auto market, in the in the housing market that haven't uh, appeared outside the surface, even though I know there's a lot of like activity going on sort of beneath the surface. I want to hear about that. And then also to what degree do you think that the banking turmoil that is going on as we speak might accelerate that? So now you're getting to the crux of the issue because you're connecting the final dot, right? Hypothetically, the Fed can backstop all of this interest rate risk right now. 
They, they can just, they, they can put a timestamp on it and say enough. We're backstopping that. You're indemnified. That has nothing to do with how lending will remain impaired. How once we empty out the construction pipeline, we see losses in that sector, upwards of a million jobs. Because that lending pipeline is not really going to get refilled. You'll still build hospitals, schools, certain things, but we know there's too much warehouse space out there, which may sound like blasphemy. There's only a billion square feet coming online soon. And Amazon's reducing its footprint, as are others. Um, we know there's too much retail out there. God knows how the Bureau of Labor Statistics managed to pull 50,000 jobs created in retail in February out of their model. I don't know where they got that from because the headlines tell you that these stores are closing fast and tons of branches, excuse me, tons of locations, um, bank branches, blah, blah, blah. But the real economy will begin to catch up here. We're going into a time when the senior loan officer surveyed that the Fed produces, whether you're talking about commercial and industrial, commercial real estate, residential real estate, auto loans, credit card loans, all that's frozen right now. All those lending standards are being clamped down at a time when your riskiest delinquency levels are where they were prior to the pandemic or back to where they were in 2009. That's your starting point for a layoff cycle. Now impair the banking system. The, the, the good players survive, but it's much more difficult for the credit that is that greases the wheels of the U.S. economy. That credit creation is constrained, and that's what happens when you go the next step out onto the spectrum. Even if the Fed backstops, what is it, $820 billion of paper that's sitting out there. Tell me about the, the weaknesses that you're seeing in commercial real estate. So commercial real estate is something that is happening in real time. You know, look, last week, the market got hit four and a half percent. REITs were down like 8%. Office REITs were down like 11%. Um, that is, that's the closest thing you can see to the, to the market pricing, the risk in the sector. There was, a, there was an interesting Bloomberg headline out this morning. I tweeted it out. Bosses are spending 25 too much of their time in meetings. They're going to blow up their Zooms. Say what you will about Elon Musk, because there's a lot, there's a lot that can be said. If he's done one thing, he has taught companies across a wide spectrum beyond the tech space that, that there's too much fat that it, maybe it wasn't such a good idea when the people, young people running their companies decided to take all of their guidance from consultants. And this is how we envision your company should be run. And because baristas have been proven in this study, as well as masseuses on staff, to make your staff happier, you should employ them as well. I mean, we've gotten so far away from running tight ships. Elon Musk changed that. And so now you have people like Zuckerberg going back and saying, well, we started with 13%. We're going to do another 13% and see where that leaves us. Companies still got the lights on, 
but it's spreading. If you've got Bloomberg headlines saying bosses are saying that they're spending 25 too much of their time in meetings. And if we have the continuation and acceleration of the white collar recession begin to spread into the cyclicals, and that's exactly what we're seeing, then we are at the beginning of what could be a protracted downturn against a backdrop of real private demand, that's consumption on an inflation adjusted basis, plus business investment on an inflation adjustment basis, as revealed in the GDP, being at 17.7 trillion for five quarters and running. So if your starting point is stagnant economic output, and this is where we're headed, I just don't think a generation's prepared for what we're looking at, especially because we don't need as many people to accomplish the same work as we once thought we did. So far, Danielle, you've been talking about the sort of physical weakness in credit that's kind of already baked in the system. But what about the psychological impact of these bank runs? When money is tight, people save more and they spend less. And therefore, there's less income to the people who produce the goods that they would have bought. So in a recession, that's fear feeds on itself. And in a boom, the sort of desire to consume feeds on feeds on itself. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of how worried people are and to what degree this will say, you know what, we were planning to go on vacation, but I read this thing about Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, maybe we'll just stay home. So if there's one thing that has really hit home over the last 72 hours, it's people coming out of the woodworks. People people texting me, I haven't heard from in years, saying, wow, should I cancel this? Should I put this? This is the opposite. This is the exact opposite. But this is This is highly deflationary. This is the exact opposite of running out and buying something because you think that the, the price is going to go up for it tomorrow. This is, whoa, banking run. I remember reading about the Great Depression and when I was studying history, and that, that means that the, the economy is slowing down because you don't have bank runs unless there's something really wrong with the underlying economy. So maybe I should make sure that I you know get that 5% on you know this 18-month CD and I'm just, I'm just going to chill for a little while because I can sleep at night because my money's in a safe place and it's all insured. And, you know, we're just going to chill. We did the backyard. We did the deck. We did the house. We did everything during the pandemic. Let's enjoy it for a little while and chill. I think that those are what, that's the anecdotes that have been flowing into me all weekend long since SVB went down. To the extent that there are bank runs, it seems to me it's not it's a wonderful life, uh, individuals lining up, needing their deposit. We have the FDIC up to a, a quarter million dollars. M- many you know, personal accounts are fine. The concern is business accounts where you have $5 million at a business account. And it makes sense to have $5 million as a, at a checking account because you're constantly receiving cash and, and paying employees, but, you know, yeah. spending on new projects. Uh, to, to what degree do you think that... The, that nature of the fact that it's businesses who are w- withdrawing, does that make it faster because, you know, it's people's jobs to panic instead of people who are just panicking on their own? Does magnitude matter? Of course it does. I mean, we, um, we were actually looking to switch because it was too onerous, but, you know, Rippling was, was Quill's payroll provider. Um, thank God the money hit uh, oh. and it wasn't stuck. And it's no longer stuck because that situation's been resolved, if you will, or for the people with Etsy. 
But what you're talking about is that that's that's a prudent, that's not a prudent CEO maneuver. That's a prudent comptroller, not even CFO, comptroller. This is the person who deals with accounts receivable and accounts payable and just making sure that we can keep the lights on because we've got cash coming in, but we've also got cash going out. It's a very in the weeds role. It's an in the weeds role. It's not an executive decision. It's a, how do we keep the business going? But I'm going to flip for you for just a second. I cannot tell you how many people in the real world, and this is backed by the National Association of Credit Managers, can't collect. This is before any of this started. The National Association of, of, of Credit Managers has been saying for months, we're having a hard time collecting. What's due to us? We're having a hard time with credit. And this is, again, it's kind of like, gee, it's just subprime auto delinquencies. That's over there in a silo. The NICM data has been worse on the service side than it's been on the manufacturing side. Service much bigger. So there's already a nervousness across corporate America because, because vendors are having a harder time getting paid. And, and these are things that nobody wants to talk about, Jack. I know everybody wants to talk about the excitement and all these stocks are halted for trading and all that, but you have to understand starting points. And the starting point was credit was already being impaired. We had 51 bankruptcies in the three months that ended February. That is a 2009 print. And there's an undeniability that the Fed's wrecking ball has done damage to the banking system, but it's already set a credit cycle in motion as well. And I think you cannot dismiss that out of hand and say, a bailout, everybody's going to be fine. None of this fixes what I'm describing. Right. So there, there are people, Danielle, who, you know, they can put up a chart of defaults or delinquencies and subprime auto loans. Those delinquencies are above 2019 levels, but pretty much every other you know, asset class, particularly mortgages, defaults are and delinquencies are lower than they were in 2019. So they refer to that as credit normalization. Yes, Danielle, you're right. The rate of delinquencies are going up, but the absolute levels are in par with historical averages. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? So yes, we are normalizing to 2019 levels. Yay, we're going into recession in 2019. Pat yourself on the back. So, and you're not going to, how in the hell are you going to see mortgage delinquencies rise when people are never moving? They're not. They're bringing more incomes under the same roof to service the mortgage. Multi-generational headship, that's increasing quickly. Gonna continue. So, a bigger problem is the, the the stagnancy in the workforce going forward. Again, you only refinance or get out of a mortgage if it's got a 2.5% coupon on it at the zero bound. You ain't going nowhere if mortgage rates stay where they are. That's why I'm saying it's a matter of maintaining. As far as delinquencies go, again, If you listen to auto lenders, the business income tax refund, the employment retention credit, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. whatever's injected $360 billion into the U.S. economy, biggest, you know, 
tax boondoggle ever for wealthy people that nobody wants to talk about. That has peaked and rolled over. Income tax refund season has peaked and rolled over. It's been three weeks now. The size of the average refund continues to fall compared to 2022. And whether it's Capital One or Ally Financial, they're seeing a normalization up the income ladder when it comes to things that people borrowed during the crisis absent that 2.5%, 3% mortgage. Now, I understand your mortgage is your biggest obligation, but there are going to be signs of distress in the household sector that are painful outside of mortgages. And by the way, banks don't want to hear that they're going to have the slowest prepays since the term prepay was designed. Banks don't want to hear that the best credits in good mortgages aren't going to be borrowing for 10 years. So yep. there's, it's, it's got its own set of issues, but I think that the, it's going to be okay. People on the household finance side, it, you can finance, you, you can service any and all debt you want as long as you have a job. Mm -hmm. It's true. All right. So your credit concerns have been nothing but amplified uh, by this banking panic. But what about the liquidity strains? Do you think this bout with interest rate risk is over? Obviously, no one has a crystal ball, but, but, but what does is, what is your gut say about, okay, this the Fed rolled out this new facility uh, where they can uh, extend credit up to one year on a handful of government securities that is you know, somewhat broad. Um, do you think that, on the dollar, hundred cents on the dollar? Hundred cents on the dollar. Yeah, if they bought a Ginny Mae security at hundred dollars and now it's seventy-five cents on the dollar, they'll get a hundred dollars by by pledging that for up to a year. That sounds somewhat rock solid. Can you, other than the credit problems, which you imagine, what? How can you see that not working out? Because it's it sounds you know somewhat somewhat ironclad, or or do you agree that it's ironclad, or can you can you poke a few holes in it? I think it's ironclad because. Because the Fed showed us during the not QE that it was willing to extend out, you know, at first, no, 30, no, 60 days, wait, 90 days. So if it's going to be a matter of extend, 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 because the Federal Reserve cannot legally be insolvent, um, then they can just keep going. And and uh, Danielle, President Biden gave a speech today reiterating, reiterating uh, many of the points from the joint statement yesterday from the FDIC, Fed, and Treasury, where he, he said bank executives will be uh, fired. This is not a bailout. Taxpayers will not pay for it. The, the FDIC will pay for it. All depositors will get their money. Uh, tell me about the claim that this is taxpayers will not pay for that. I can see arguments why that's true, and I can see arguments that undermine that claim. Do you think it will be accurate to say when this is all said and done that to the extent that there was help from the government, FDIC, Fed, Treasury, whatever you want to say, taxpayers were not involved? Well, um, you know, I, I don't think the banks are going to be very happy about it when the FDIC hands down a special assessment. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you live in a community and they decide that it's time to, you know, if, if you live in some posh gated community with a golf course, and they tell everybody who owns a home there, well, we've decided that we're going to put, put new greens out on the golf course. So we're, we're going to hand you a one-time assessment. 
and you're going to have to pay because you live here and you're part of this homeowners association. So that's what the fine print says right now, that the FDIC will make an assessment if there's inadequate uh, monies available to cover depositors. That's, that's you know, it's not going to make some individuals who run great big banks ha happy at all. But that's the game plan right now. And I don't understand how assessing banks um, goes back to bite taxpayers unless you take it one step further and say, well, then they're going to be stingier with their deposit rates. But that doesn't work either because then they'll just leave and go find a place where they can get four and three quarters, five percent for their cash. So this is going to be a margin squeeze for the banks, Jack. There's absolutely no doubt about it. This is going to be very hard for the banks. Both because of increased FDIC payments to, to bail out uh, their other folks in the, in the banking sector, but also because banks will have to pay more for deposits? Correct and correct. And because uh, I was talking about the senior loan officer survey earlier and to the point you made a few minutes ago, the demand for loans is going to go away as well. So even if they could make demand, a lot of people, a lot of companies are going to batten down the hatches and not borrow as much as they would otherwise. And banks are in the business to make loans. Yeah. It, it, it's funny, uh, Danielle, that again, this has so far all been about interest rate risks. Silicon Valley, as horrible as the risk management was, they didn't even have that many loans on the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and First Republic Bank, a blank that's, you know, fighting for its life and you know you and I are rooting for it uh they're they're famous for having ridiculously low charge-offs very low defaults like one-tenth the defaults as as the average bank in America why but did Jamie Diamond step in on on that's why Jamie Jamie Diamond stepped in on Sunday night last night right right so so you think that the the liquidity phase where Credit doesn't doesn't matter about credit. All that matters is about liquidity. And if you've got the best loans in the history of banking, but ninety five percent of your depositors are businesses that are earning nothing, and th th there's a bank panic, that is much worse than you have a very sticky core deposit base of of personal savers who and and that money is invested in relatively you know cr crummy loans. Do you think you think that liquidity phase is is approaching an end already? I think there's going to be a lot of banks that don't want to be acquired that are acquired. Mm. If, if, if the Fed indemnifies what they have classified as hold to maturity, then you remove the barrier to broker a marriage between a good bank and a good bank. And that's the difference between now and 08, right? In 08, mm. you were buying a bad bank. No reason to really buy a bad bank, but you can buy a good bank um, that's simply down on its knees liquidity-wise. And that's that's not there's 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 nothing positive in what I just said, Jack. Except the bad bank not being, you know, rescued. But to see a good bank go away is not a good thing. It is not a good thing, but it's it's preferable to the alternative where all you know, many of the regional banks go down. So you you think that the the backstop can limit uh banks being being shut down by the FDIC. Yes, there may be a, a shotgun marriage here or there, but the so so again that's that's in that's a silver lining, right? It, that uh the the legislation passed yesterday was was good. Or the emergency package yesterday was good. Yeah, I mean again, um if you're saying indemnify interest rate losses, that's one thing. If you're saying indemnify credit losses, that's another. 
but you're talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's like the good princess instead of the bad princess. So. Right. Uh, so tell me about, so it, the federal reserve is indemnifying, uh, interest rate losses. It's lending a hundred cents on the dollar to a Ginny May to a treasury that's now worth 80 cents, let's say. How is that not the taxpayer paying for it? I, I can see the argument, but ex- explain that to the audience, folks who may be saying, gee, Danielle, that sure sounds like the Federal Reserve is bailing it out and that's just printing money and the taxpayer will ultimately be on the hook. Well, Jack, is the Federal Reserve eventually going to get 100 cents on the dollar back? Yes. Would they have regardless? Would the bond have matured? Yes, but there's the opportunity cost of now you can get 5% on a Ginny May and you're buying something with pretending that it can get 2%. Okay. I mean, yes, I, I can see where that argument can be made. Yeah. Truth of the matter, Danielle, is in my own personal opinion, I'm actually, uh, I, I agree with you, but I'm just trying to, you know, you know, you know, journalists, media, always, always trying to there's, be fair. There's not going to be any, there, there's not going to be let's satisfy everybody. Because yeah. again, the alternative is we work under the assumption that the only way that our financial system can operate is at the zero bound. Because that's yeah. the only alternative. That's it. And, and does that make taxpayers whole in the end? Or does that make the financial system that much more rickety such that you take down an entire economy eventually because you can only you can only save the patient so many times you can only go in there when their blood pressure drops so low and go in there and pump it back up so many times before eventually you lose the patient and i don't mean to you know i'm, I'm not I am on a soapbox we have to find a way to get past needing to exist for our very existence at the zero bound. So if you're going to split hairs and say, well, gee, the Fed is providing relief when they shouldn't, and the Fed put themselves in this position in the first place, well, they did it because they were trying to get off the zero bound. Mm-hmm. It, there's All I'm saying is there's no perfect answers. I wrote that in this morning's feather. Mm-hmm. I said, there is there, there are no magic bullets right now. There is no perfect compromise. It simply doesn't exist. But nor did it exist when when Jay Powell was saying transitory, blowing up the Fed's balance sheet and keeping rates artificially repressed. Shame on him then. That didn't need to happen. And yet, again, what we're all not talking about right now is that there is this massive private non-banking market that's out there. And it's bigger than the banking system that we're having an anxiety attack over. And they've had no rules of operation. And they still have not been slapped on the wrist. If the Fed maintains high interest rates, they finally will be. And nobody wants to talk about that. You'll see securitization go away. It will be extremely painful in the interim. But you will see a lot of asset-backed securitizations. You'll see lending eventually go back to being in the banking system. Yes, Daniel, you are so right. What did Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and some other banks that are having pressure, I won't name names, what do they have in common? They bank the venture capital and the private equity industry, where 
that that is the sh- the shadow banking system where you you're making loans and you're doing deals and you're lending against funds uh, so that venture capital and private equity can make their performance look better. So you know if we if you invest in November 2011, but we don't do the deal until November 2012, we don't call the money until 12, and then for our internal rate of return, we we say that the deal started in. The, the, uh, 2012, even though you signed the contract in uh, 2011. And uh, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of people talking about that. And you won't until all of a sudden wake up, we wake up and it's Friday afternoon and we're like, oh, there went a prime broker. And it, then it's going to be a different discussion. And it's going to be a bigger discussion. Because this, this naivete that the entire financial system looks like Jamie Dimon's balance sheet is is just it, it, it there's it's wrong i'm sorry there's leverage in the system there's always leverage in the system mm-hmm. it's just where it lives and there's plenty of unseen leverage in this system but all of these players have a very kind friendly neighborhood banker over the weekend there was rumors that silicon valley bank would be bought by a competitor as what is what happened during 2008 with let's say uh you know Washington Mutual the, the FDIC likes to find a suitor and they like to have the deal done uh but it, but in, in, instead what happened is the FDIC took it over directly and i don't know is is the hunt for a, a match still on given that we have this backstop facility this coming week's weekly quill i'm going to do a deep dive on a speech that jay powell made in 2013 about how the FDIC could structure in the future getting through a bank that was really big. Remember, remember, SVB, they lobbied Congress to not be classified as a SIFI. Yes. So they weren't in the um, uh, uh, stress test. Exactly. But they lobbied for that. They said, no, 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 no. It doesn't need to be 50. No, no, no. That's silly. So, but they asked for this so that they could operate effectively in the shadows but still be in the regulated realm. Um, But in that 2013 speech that Jay Powell made, there was a a very structured mechanism through which the FDIC could go in and break the bank up into chunks and sell it off in pieces. And this is Jay Powell's words. He said, going into this plan of the FDIC's because of what he'd been through with Solomon Brothers and because of the bank runs that he'd seen in his career, he said nothing can stop a process of bank runs in its tracks. And then he said, but then I got through this thing that the FDIC described. And if you piecemeal it out, you know, it looks like there is a way to, 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 to plan for too big to fail, to make it such that there is no such thing. Congress asked him in 2017, is there such thing as too big to fail? And they just about fell out of their chairs. And he said, no, I don't think there is. I think there's a way to work this out in the future. So he's not that old. I don't think he forgot he made the speech. Um, And I I bet a lot of discussions have been going on over the weekend about bits and pieces breaking it up. I bet they had a very busy weekend. But it's a game plan. All I'm saying, Jack, is that it's something that was discussed a decade ago. Right. So what do you think next week's FOMC meeting will be? We're recording March 13th. This will air March 13th, doing a quick flip on uh, in, in nine days on the Wednesday FOMC meeting. 
I have a feeling the journalists are not going to be asking about this measure of inflation. I feel like they'll they'll be talking about someone else. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be, you know, in light of developments that have occurred in the banking system to ensure that the Federal Reserve maintains its role as being lender of last reserves, you know, in, in, in times of acute distress, uh, we've decided to pause on our policy. Um, but this is not March of 2020 with the Fed rolling in overnight and saying unlimited QE, we're at the zero bound. So I'm reading from the Federal Reserve statement yesterday, quote, the Federal Reserve is prepared to address any liquidity pressures that may arise. If this were 2020, if this were 2020 instead of 2023, Danielle, we could understand providing liquidity. That means QE. But in this case instance, does it just mean the facility lending against good collateral with tons of interest rate risk that is overvalued, but no credit risk? Or is it kind of opening up the QE uh, spigots again, possibility, or at least opening up the possibility of closing the QT? And that's the biggest question, because if they're going to stick to the words of what you just read me, they can keep doing QT. Mm -hmm. Now, it's going to further impair lending. It's going to take Lacey Hunt's ODL down. That will continue. And that depletes liquidity from the system. So I'm technically talking out of both sides of my mouth. But if it's just a matter of providing liquidity to safe assets, then they can theoretically continue to unwind the balance sheet. Again, this will be painful for especially private credit. Yes. But technically speaking, they can continue to do this. So that there's private credit. That is its own world. And then there's securitized credit, which is very complicated. I heard a gentleman on Bloomberg today say, I've never seen investment grade credit more overvalued in my lifetime. What we can do, buying treasuries and securitized credit, we're getting immense amounts of, of value without taking any credit risk. And I imagine he, he probably owns you know Ginny Mae's uh, agency security, so no credit risk. Okay, fine. But- seems like there are a lot more risks that are present than, than people may be thinking about. Well, we forget that the White House came out and backstopped every single FHA loan, regardless of whether or not you were having trouble making your mortgage payment. Um, so that entire sector of the mortgage market right now is backstopped. By, is, that, is that right? Are you referring during 2020 or right now? Right now. That, that happened a few weeks ago. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. 11% of mortgages. I was screaming my head off at the time. I think Chris Whalen was too. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, so, but and now you're talking Ginny May. Yeah. Uh, but the securitized market is not necessarily. I think I think existing securitized paper AAA will be fine. I think the bigger issue here is issuance and mm-hmm. American Car Center. A company with 50 branches. Oh my God. 50 locations that couldn't sell $222 million in subprime auto ABS folding within 24 hours. And Daniel, who owned that? Who owned that? Um, York Capital. Private equity group. Yep. York Capital. So again, access to really cheap money designed as you like 
with life insurance companies buying the mezzanine layer because they're starved for yield. Oh, wait, they're not starved for yield anymore. Issuance in these markets, the arresting of that issuance, that's when things start to get really hairy for private equity. How do you think Powell's mission to uh, destroy the Fed put do, do you think that he will still be successful? Uh, how, how severe of a challenge do you think this, this is for, for him to do that? Well, you and I have just spent quite a bit of time talking about whether or not he has to go back to the zero bound and start restart QE. Yeah. It ain't going to be easy to stay tight at all. Again, I, I'm, I'm in a minority that's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But you have to stop at some point and say what's right and what's wrong. And... Constantly bailing out private equity, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. It just doesn't because at last check, the person who made the most last year in that world, his one-year paycheck was $1.27 billion. I'm not losing any sleep over, you know, if he's not going to be able to buy the biggest yacht in the world. I'm just not. But those are the types who have benefited the most from zero interest rate policy from quantitative easing, from the securitization markets being wide open, from the fact that you cannot make a decent yield on cash savings. Why isn't anybody talking about savers right now? Because in a zero interest rate world, private equity does fine, savers are screwed. So there, there's more than one contingency to be advocated for here. Depositors are not the only ones. You can also have somebody raise a flag and say, I'm going to advocate today for the baby boomers. Danielle, it's, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to interview you. Um, tell us about Quill Intelligence and specifically the, the Daily Feather. What do you write about? What inspires you? And what can people glean from uh, your writings? So um, it, it's, it's funny because I had somebody send me a chart a few days ago and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You wrote about that a few weeks ago. <laughs> like, and and, and and it wasn't tongue in cheek. They're like, but Danielle, that's that's your only life goal. You want to be in front of trends before they're even trends. You want to sniff out what's going to take place over the next few weeks. You want to be unpopular with what you write. And I'm extremely unpopular most of the time with what I publish uh, because I, I'm talking about things that nobody wants to talk about. I'm saying that disinflationary winds are, are, are blowing. I'm saying that national, that I'm saying that credit managers are having a hard time collecting. I'm saying that there, there will be no, no landing or no soft landing. Um, not when there's that much risk in the financial system. And I'm always looking and conceiving and crafting and writing the research, A, real time, but B, through the lens of monetary policy. That's what makes the daily feather so unique. I don't know that we've published ever. And it's not because I have some kind of a strange yearning and want to go back to the Federal Reserve System. But I don't think that I've ever published a feather that doesn't mention the Federal Reserve or monetary policy and how that plays into whether I'm talking about what's going on in the financial markets or what's going on with macroeconomic data. Yes, you're very focused on the Federal Reserve, monetary policy, and the, the economy. So 
I'd say you got pretty much the the three big uh, uh, factors of macro, and I'll I'll say so. It starts off with four charts always, and not only is it is it insightful, but it's a pleasure to read, which is great for any notes. But in particular, you know, finance writing can be be very dry. So I enjoy it. It's, it's my guidepost to to what's happening uh, in the day. So people who uh, are interested can get a twenty percent discount by using code guidance uh, or by clicking the link in the description. Danielle, a pleasure having you here. Uh, my final question is, I'm just seeing an article from, from Bloomberg saying, Silicon Valley Bank becomes latest political attack line against Biden. I'm so glad that for the majority of our interview, we, we've you know, stuck away from politics, but I, I wanna close here. Uh, do, do you think that the president, do you think that this, this crisis will heighten political tensions? And if so, in what ways? Oh, I think that this crisis will will really ratchet up political tensions. Um, you know, supporting a massive deficit level, working under the assumption that this can be carried out indefinitely. Silvergate, Silicon Valley, Signature, who knows how many others without these backstops. The U.S. financial system, the U.S. banking system right now is saying that between our balance sheets and the Fed's balance sheets, there's too much paper out there. There's too much debt out there. If I'm the guy with the gavel in charge of the House of Representatives, I am taking this opportunity to say the insanity has to stop. We're not grandstanding by saying we have to address entitlement reform in the current debt ceiling. And by the way, I've got evidence right now on the headlines that we've got too much debt and that we need to get our house in order. So if it's seven trillion you've got in mind, why can't we talk about it being four and a half? Let's sit down and be adults and negotiate because if you think that everything can be glossed over indefinitely, the current headlines are just absolutely disputing that fact. We'll leave it there. Danielle, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for watching. Thanks again for watching. Danielle's note, the Daily Feather, normally costs $599 per year, but for Guidance is running a special discount. So if you use code Guidance, you can get 20% off. So use code Guidance or go to demartinobooth.substack.com forward slash guidance.